following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're going to be looking in uh, Exodus chapter 25, starting in verse 23. And this morning we're, we're mostly going to be studying furniture. So this should be good. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Yeah. Okay, Exodus chapter 25, starting at verse 23. If you want to follow along, we'll read. Uh, You shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. Uh, And actually, I'll tell you what. I forgot I did this in New Living. Let me switch versions here. So we're all on the same version. Overlay it with pure gold and run a gold molding around on the edge. Decorate it with a three-inch border all around and run a gold molding along the border. Make four gold rings for the table and attach them at the four corners next to the four legs. Attach the rings near the border to hold the poles that are used to carry the table. Make these poles from acacia wood and overlay them with gold. Make special containers of pure gold for the table, bowls, ladles, pitchers, and jars to be used in pouring out liquid offerings. Place the bread of presence on the table to remain before me at all times. Make a lampstand of pure hammered gold. Make the entire lampstand and its decorations of one piece, the base, center stem, lamp cups, buds, and petals. Make it with six branches going out from the center stem, three on each side. Each of the six branches will have three lamps, lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Craft the center stem of the lampstand with four lamp cups shaped like almond blossoms, complete with buds and petals. Everybody got this so far? <laughs> like, this is a lot of stuff. I don't even know what we're talking about. We'll, we'll hopefully explain it. There will also be an almond bud beneath each pair of branches where the six branches extend from the center stem. The almond buds and branches must all be of one piece with the center stem, and they must be hammered from pure gold. Then make seven lamps for the lampstand and set them so they reflect their light forward. The lamp snuffers and trays must also be made of pure gold. You will need 75 pounds of pure gold for the lampstand and its accessories. Be sure that you make everything according to the pattern I have shown you here on the mountain. All right, we're going to delve into the furniture here. Uh, but before we do that, um, uh, just, just a quick question for you. Why, why are you here this morning? If you were to be real honest, then just answer that question in your heart. Why are you here? For what purpose did you come to church? Uh, my experience living here in Chiang Mai for many years, um, I talk with many people, I, I believe that a lot of people are very confused about what church is and its purpose. Uh, I think most of those people aren't here, actually. Um, and, and the sad reality is, that, I don't know if you know this, but I, uh, I would estimate, and there's other figures that would be there, but probably about half of all missionaries worldwide uh, do not ever go to church. And I would say the number in Chiang Mai, where there are actually multiple international churches, I would say the number is even greater of people who do not even go to church. And the ironic thing is some of them claim to be church planters. 
Uh, I don't get how that works, but... Um, uh, and, and at the heart of the issue is I think people really don't know what the church is for. They don't know its purpose. They don't know why we gather on Sunday morning. And I've talked to people who said, well, church is really not the gathering on Sunday morning. I have church when I go to Starbucks and hang out with my friends. Um, a lot of confusion there about what the church is. Um, and we'll see uh, from Exodus, uh, and of course the temple is not the church, but there's a lot of things we can learn here. Uh, that'll help us understand what the church is and, and what our purpose is. What are we to be about when we gather? And how do we know if we did it well? At the end of the service, if we're to grade the service, how would you grade it? Um, honestly, if, if we were to be honest with ourselves or if we were to check how most people in the world, maybe not you, but a lot of people perceive what church is about and how they would measure its success, at the end of the service, if we did a survey, they would measure by if, if they got something out of it. And I hear that all the time. You know, I went to church, I didn't get anything out of it. So that would imply that the purpose of church is to get something. Uh, and of course, we live in a very consumer-driven world where that's how we live our life. We go places to get stuff. And if they don't have something to give us, we don't go there. right? And so a lot of people view church that way. Um, I didn't get something. Um, whether that means practical help or how to have a more successful life or some kind of emotional experience or to be entertained at some level or feel, feel something, right? Um, and along with that is this whole idea that worship, to be genuine, must be spontaneous and unstructured and non-institutional. Um, and we'll see as we look at what happens in the temple, it's pretty institutional, right? It's pretty structured and set. There is a blueprint for it. Uh, with a very structured time and place and, and things, right? So today we're going to study furniture, um, a table and a lampstand. And I'm telling you right now, uh, this is not going to tell you how to have a more successful life, right? This, this table and this lampstand are not going to, you're not going to go away going, wow, I really know how to deal with my life better because there's a table and a lampstand. Okay, I'm just telling you right up front, this is not going to happen. Uh, I didn't even try to figure out how to apply this one, and I can't imagine what that would have looked like, right? Um, but uh, I do believe that this table and this lampstand is going to teach us about the true purpose or aim of worship. Um, and and uh, these two pieces actually are part of, of actually a trio of three pieces of temple furniture that, are, that form and constitute really the heart and center of, of the worship for the Israelites that God was forming this blueprint for. And that's why I called it the heart, heart of worship aim. Uh, these pieces of furniture are at the heart, the center of their worship. And it's interesting that uh, God begins by giving instructions about these three pieces of furniture even before the actual tabernacle. Because the tabernacle was not the most important thing. Okay? Uh, what was most important were actually these three pieces of furniture. Uh, the ark, the table with its bread of presence, bread of the presence, and the lampstand, which is modeled or shaped after an almond, almond tree. Um, and uh, it, God, in, these, in this passage, uh, he is giving them a blueprint for worship. And the center of that is in the most important features of this blueprint that he gives them is these three pieces of furniture. 
these three objects. So what do these objects teach us about what worship is and uh, what is to be the center of worship? That's what we want to try to answer this morning. Uh, so first off, uh, it, is, it is for the Israelites a new model, a new paradigm, a new style of worship. Perhaps not style, because actually it's, the style is somewhat similar to what they would have known in their world. Uh, but it is a new purpose, a new aim, a new reason to worship. Um, and you have to understand that when the Israelites came out of Egypt, all they knew about worship is what they had really seen practiced around them in the world. And in that day, before God gave this blueprint, all worship was essentially pagan. And what that means is that um, uh, they, uh, they, they were to go through these ceremonies and rituals in order to get the gods' attention. Uh, that, that's what was at the heart of most uh, pagan worship, right? They, uh, the gods were not on earth, right? They lived far away in the heavens, uh, and they would craft and shape an idol, and somehow this idol was a way to basically teleconnect with the god. Some, through this ceremony, some piece of the god would, would be transfused into this idol, and through that they could communicate. It was kind of like their version of Wi-Fi, I said before, that they could somehow gain access to the gods who were far away in the heavens. Right? So worship in, the, in a pagan world was, was doing these ceremonies and rituals and practices to get the gods' attention, because he's far away, and to uh, feed the gods, because apparently even though the gods lived in heaven, they liked donuts or something, Krispy Kremes. They liked human food. And so they would feed the gods, and they would obligate the gods to help them. And, and they would basically manipulate the gods. I, I, you, I give you food, and you do what I need to help me. And, of course, we see that practice here today in, in, in our context here in Thailand. You know, we put out this food. We feed the spirits so that they will either bless us with good luck or, at the very least, not plague us with bad luck and bad things. Right, so very similar. Now, of course, in the Ten Commandments, in the beginning of the covenant and throughout the covenant, God made it very clear two things. Number one, you must worship Yahweh alone. Absolutely, you may not in any way ever worship these idol gods because they're false. They're not real. And uh, in the whole Exodus, he showed that he was the true and living God who alone had power over all of nature. And so it was pointless for them to Seek the help of these false gods. So they were not to worship idols. But not only that, they were not to represent God in any way or shape or form by an idol. Right? So they were not to create or cast any kind of image in which they believed somehow God would, like, like the idols, would, would invade this image and some piece of him would be in this image so that they could communicate with God. Um, God was radically different. Uh, and if we go back to Exodus 2, 23 through 25, uh, it, it portrays how different Yahweh is, right? It says in verse 23 of chapter 2, During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. And uh, later it says that God not only saw and heard and knew of their suffering, but because of that, because of his great compassion, 
He decided to save them. And he set in motion this great rescue effort, uh, raising up Moses and calling them out of Egypt. Um, so, so the point is that God did this without their worship. Okay, they cried out to God, they prayed to God, but it wasn't because they had gone through any ceremonies or rituals or practiced any voodoo that God all of a sudden noticed them. Right? God was watching them. God knew their affliction. He knew their suffering. And God, out of his compassion, and for no other reason, out of his own character, his heart of compassion, he was moved to deal with Israel and help them. Uh, so, clearly, worship for Israel was not a way to get God's attention. Okay, they didn't come to this tabernacle. This tabernacle was not built as a way for them to do some elaborate ceremonies so that God way up in the heavens would notice them. Okay, that was not to be the aim or focus of their worship. Um, God may have been heaven, but he's watching closely everything that they do. They don't need to get his attention. Um, uh, and clearly God had already helped them, and he would help them. Right, so, so what should their worship look like? Um, now, to us, the answer seems quite obvious, right? And if I were to do a survey this morning, I'm sure most of you would say something like, well, worship is giving God praise, glorifying God, exalting God, uh, something to that effect. Um, but while, while, while the Israelites did understand the principle of of thankfulness, and certainly Abraham uh, had set up several altars and places to demonstrate his his conviction about God, his belief as God, and his thankfulness to God. This really wasn't actually in, in the pagan realm a focus of worship, because when the God helped you, uh, you didn't actually owe him gratitude because you'd already bought him off, right? You already you already paid him his due. You didn't need to go back and thank him, right? Um, so this is kind of a new thing, this idea of gratitude, thankfulness, of praise, of responding to God's grace and blessing in our life through worship. It's a new thing for them, and a new concept, a new idea. So there is a need for a new model, a new blueprint for worship. And God gives that blueprint in the form of this structure, the tabernacle, and this furniture, and uh, these ceremonies that encompass their, their worship as a people. Um, and it now has a new, a new kind of focus, aim, and purpose. Um, but what's interesting, even though the focus is new, the, the, the aim is, is going to be sharper and clearer, and we'll see what it is as we go through this. What's interesting is that God does not actually radically change the form or format. Uh, the, ta- the tabernacle, in many ways, would have looked a lot like uh, it had certainly similarities to a pagan temple. Um, it, it was a place to worship. And pagan worship was very, for lack of a better term, liturgical or institutional. And what I mean by that is there was a, a set place to worship. Um, now, that may be under some big tree or on top of a mountain, uh, but you picked auspicious places. Um, there were appointed times of worship. Seasons and moons and festivals and times of year when worship was to happen. Um, There were specific objects of worship. And finally, there were prescribed rituals. And all of these are true in this blueprint for worship. God doesn't say, well, you can worship me anywhere, anytime, just as the Spirit leads, right? God did not say that to Israel. Now, he may may say that to you and I. 
Although I think sometimes we take our self-styled individualistic worship in ways that are not from Scripture. Uh, And certainly uh, we live in a different era and we should be filled with worship all the time. But uh, God here, and I think even in our age, he does set specific institutions for worship. There is a set place. There are set times. There are certainly um, objects and, and prescribed rituals or ceremonies that we do that are part of our worship and part of what the church is engaged in. And I don't know that coffee at Starbucks is necessarily one of those objects, okay? Maybe, but maybe not. Um, so, so here's a problem, though. Um, what is the difference between an object and an idol? Right? They were not to have any image that represented God, but here we have these three pieces of furniture that are clear objects of worship. Right? Well, I think the distinction is this. That there is a purpose and a need for objects as part of their, their worship, um, but, uh, but these idols did not represent God. Right? So nobody, w- nobody would have said that the ark was God, was like a picture or image of God, that that it captured the essence of who he was. Uh, nobody said that the table, you know, our God is a table. <laughs> we worship the God of the table. Uh, kind of anticlimactic, right? Now, the lampstand gets a little closer. Uh, certainly, God is light, and he, you know, there's a lot about fire and flames, and that might be a little closer. But none of these things would have been, would have been understood by the Israelites as being representatives of God. Right? Instead, they were really symbols or objects that explained something about him. Uh, they were reminders of what God is to us, as we will see in a moment. So, so there, there are basically these three main objects that are at the heart of worship, the center of their worship. And these things, these objects really become the, the main visual focal point of, of Israel's worship. So we want to look at these and, and see if, as we think about them if we can understand or if it helps us see the aim or focus purpose of their worship. Uh, Now, last week, if you were here, Nate uh, did a great job talking about the ark, and I'm not going to go, I just want to review real quickly. But if you remember, he said, you guys remember, he said, the ark helps us understand that God is real. God is, and now I forgot them, and I had them earlier. God God is holy. God is present. Very good. Yeah, God is real. God is holy. God is present. That's true. Uh, the ark was a box. Inside it was the covenant. On top was a lid. All of it made of acacia wood, but covered with pure gold. On the lid were two cherubim facing each other, and their, their wings extended to each other. And it, it says that God's presence resided or dwelled in that space between the cherubim. Now, uh, this box was small. It was, it was not a big box. It was rather small. So the cherubim are little little models, right? A little space. So there's a little space, like this little space, right? And this is God, right? Now, did God really exist in this little bubble, right, this big? Is that really where God existed? Well, no, it was all very symbolic, right? God is not confined to space. He fills all of heaven, all of earth. Uh, but symbolically, it was a representation of God's presence with them. Solomon understood that 
that it wasn't really literally God's throne. And so he depicted or, or conceived of the, uh, of the mercy seat, the, the cover of atonement, as his footstool. Right? God's throne is in heaven, but his foot touches the earth right here. And it still is this idea that God was present. There was something about God's presence that was there. Uh, not all of him, but something of him was present, residing in that place. Also significant, as Nate brought out last Sunday, was uh, the atonement seat, that this throne was the place, the only place where atonement could be fully made. Uh, And of course, it was made uh, with blood and with sacrifice. But really, the atonement itself was not made at the altar where the sacrifice was burned, where the blood was gathered. But the blood was collected, was brought in one day a year to the ark, and it was sprinkled on the atonement cover. And, and the idea is that only God can atone sin. And it's, it's a reconciliation of relationship with him. So um, that can only be done in his presence. So once a year, the priest would come into uh, the presence of God and they would sprinkle blood on the atonement cover and would bring forgiveness and atonement for all the people. Uh, but the ark itself was most holy. And as we know and we'll see, as Ryan's going to share next Sunday about the tabernacle itself, it's set in its own special compartment, the Holy of Holies, and there's a curtain that cuts it off. So even though God is there, uh, you don't just walk in and say, hey, God, what's up today, right? Uh, There's this veil. There's something of his holiness that needs to be guarded and protected. Um, No one could see the ark, uh, much less come in into it, to come near to it. So they could come near, but only near to a point. It was there, but it was hidden and in some sense inaccessible. Because that's the, that's the ark. Um, and I need to share a little bit about that because it, it connects with the other two pieces. Uh, the second piece is the table. Uh, it's a low table, about three feet long, a foot and a half wide, so very similar in size to the, to the ark, actually. Uh, picture kind of your living room coffee table, right, about that size. Uh, Also made with acacia wood, but again covered in pure gold. Okay, I don't know about you, but my coffee table is not covered in pure gold. In fact, nothing in my house has a trace of gold, (laughs) except for my wedding ring and some of Denise's beautiful jewelry, right? I mean, gold is expensive stuff, right? Uh, But it was covered in pure gold, every speck of it covered in pure gold, hammered gold. Um, and its main function, there's nothing magical about the, te- the, the table, uh, but, but it has a function. And what it was to do was to hold 12 loaves of bread uh, called the bread of presence. And certainly uh, the 12 would represent the 12 tribes of Israel uh, in some way. And in these 12 loaves were to sit continually before God in his presence. And so they would make these loaves, they would put them out, they would sit there for seven days, uh, apparently not as humid in Thailand, because if it was in Thailand, it would be 12 really moldy loaves of bread. But in the Middle East, they could get away with this. And uh, so instead of being moldy, it was probably just a little hard. Um, But perhaps it was more of a kind of matzo bread, we don't know. Uh, And actually later, there are recipes for the bread, but... uh, The point is, it would be there for seven days, continually before God. And then they would collect that bread and the the priest would actually go and they would eat the bread. Uh, It was part of their sacred duty and right. Um, So 
So what, what is this about? Well, uh, it's interesting how many commentators uh, talk about this as some kind of offering to God. But nowhere in the passage and nowhere in Scripture does it talk about this bread as being a gift or offering t- presented to God. Right? It's not, it does not use the language of offering. It just says they lay those pieces of bread there. Uh, and certainly, uh, God is not like the pagans' gods. God does not need bread. Okay? It's not put there as some way of you know, feeding God because he's hungry and he likes, he likes bread. Okay? There's no picture or image of that here. That's not who God is. In fact, later on in Psalms and in Isaiah, God talks about the fact that he doesn't need their sacrifices. He's not hungry. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need them to feed him. Right, so this is not an offering. Um, they are not giving it to, to feed God. And I think the fact that the priests were to take the bread and go eat it is a sign of that. Right? They, uh, it was for human consumption, not for God. Uh, so, so what is this about? Well, uh, in addition to the bread, we'll get to that, but in addition to the bread, there's also uh, dishes, gold bowls and plates that were also to be set on this table. Uh, and of course, gold poles for carrying it so that like the ark, they could carry it without touching it. Um, and I believe all these things, its connection, it's the amount of gold that's used, the poles, uh, it's showing that the table and the ark are connected. They're, they're, they're made of the same substance. Right? So just like the ark is not, is not for God, but it's really something of God as he is to them, so is true of the table. The table and the bread is not for God, but it's something of God as a symbol of what God is to Israel, what he is to them, a picture or a symbol of that. It's picturing something about who God is. So so what is it picturing? Well, I think the answer comes in, in, in what's there, the bread of presence. Right? God names it. He doesn't call it... He doesn't call it the bread of, I'm hungry and I I want a donut. Uh, It's not called that. It's not called the the bread of, you know, sacrificial offering to God. It's called the bread of presence. In other words, um, it is a symbol of God's presence with Israel and Israel's constant presence before God. Right? These the 12 loaves represent the 12 tribes who are constantly right in front of the ark, the, the, the very throne and place of God. Um, and God was not a God who would be present with them just on special occasions, but bread is a great picture of, of what? Of a very common daily thing. Right? Uh, the Israelites lived on bread, kind of like Thai people live on rice. It was their main staple. It was a daily thing. That's a picture that God was present and constantly in their midst. He didn't come down just at special times, but he was the main staple of their life, their daily bread. The gold plates, cups, and bowls pictured uh, a meal. Right? This is a table set for a meal. And the Israelites, whether in their feasts or celebrations or just bringing their fellowship offerings, the fellowship offering was an offering that they would eat in God's presence. And so it's this picture of God setting a table before them where he would feed them and they would have this fellowship meal together in the very presence of God Almighty. Um, 
the bread may also be a reminder of his provision. Right? That God, even in the wilderness, had given them daily manna, daily bread. Uh, and certainly God was the one who would provide and meet every need. He would, he would sustain them and, and, and meet their every need. Right, so that's the table. It is it's a picture, a symbol of something that God is to Israel. Okay, let me turn to the lampstand. What's the lampstand about? It's the third main object of worship. Uh, it was to be made of solid gold, not, not even acacia wood. It was to be pounded out of solid gold, 75 pounds worth. Now, I don't know, you know, the current cost of gold, what that would be worth, but it would be worth a fortune. And by the way, if, uh, if any of you are planning to go on the trip to Israel, uh, when you go uh, very near the, the Wailing Wall, uh, you can go see a gold, solid gold uh, lampstand that's already been made for the new temple. And the, the, the Jews have, have already constructed all the furniture. They're just waiting for uh, the day when they can build the new temple, and you can go look. I was going to show you a picture of it. I forgot. Sorry, um, but there's a great picture. There's, there's a great example of what this looks like. Um, uh, it, 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 it's two things kind of combined into one. First of all, all the language that describes it talks a lot about flowers and blossoms. It was to be patterned after an an almond tree. Uh, the three, and if you've seen a menorah, the three branches that come out of each side are supposed to be like branches of a tree. And on them are to be all kinds of cups and, and uh, uh, buds and blossoms of an almond tree. Um, at the top of each branch and the top of the center branch were to be seven oil lamps uh, that were to be burning constantly before God. But what's interesting is he makes a special point to say, make sure that the light of the lamp is pointing forward towards the people. Uh, so, so what is this about? Um, well, I believe that, the, the, like, like the table, the lamp is not for God's benefit, right? God, you know, God can see in the dark, right? God's not afraid of the dark. This is not a nightlight because at night, God hanging out in the back, back room there was going to get scared, um, clearly, this was not for God's benefit. It was, again, it was an object with meaning about who God is to the people. And these two images paint uh, two pictures of something of who God is. So what, what do these images represent? Well, lots of things for the almond tree. The almond tree is a reminder of the Garden of Eden. Um, the temple, in many ways, looks back to God's original blessing in creation before the fall. And uh, hopefully we'll see more of that next week with the, the tabernacle itself. But certainly here's this image or picture of a tree. Um, the almond tree was the first tree to bloom in the Middle East, all the way in January, long before anything else. When there was hardly any sign of light, the almond tree would blossom. And so uh, it was often used to represent life or new life or new birth. Uh, it's possible that the tree was meant to remind them of the tree of life in the garden. There could be a connection there. Uh, additionally, Moses slash Aaron's rod that was used to rescue them out of uh, Egypt was made out of what? An almond tree, right? It bloomed with almond blossoms. So it's a reminder of God's deliverance, his power in rescuing them. Um, those are some of the images of the almond tree. The, the, the perpetual light 
shining on the people is a reminder of God's constant watch care over them. Right? Like the, the light that was constantly burning even through the night. God himself was constantly vigilant and watching. Uh, as the, as the light shone out on them, so did God's eyes shine out on Israel as he was watching over them. Right? They didn't need to get his attention because he was constantly uh, watching them. And, and that meant he was constantly caring for them, protecting them, uh, preserving them, giving them life. Now, <clears throat> um, have I covered all the meanings of the table, the bread, the lampstand, and the ark? Probably not, right? Probably not. And it's very possible that these symbols, these images, as they came and worshipped day by day and week by week and month by month at the temple, that, that God spoke many other things to them through these pictures and images. But this gives us at least a glimpse of some of what it meant as God was communicating something of who he is to the people through these objects. <clears throat> uh, while they could not see the ark, because it was hidden away. Uh, during the day, the, the, the entrance of the tabernacle, the, the curtains were pulled back and they could not enter. The average person could not enter. But they could see. They could look in and they could see the table and, and the lamp and they would, they would have uh, felt something. They would have connected in some way with these objects of worship. So what I want to do is real quick take these three objects. When you put all three objects together and we look at them as one thing, what does it tell us about worship? Well, short and simple, I think the, the main point that it communicates is, is this, that uh, worship is about meeting God up close and personal. But that's really what this is all about. Uh, they, they're certainly not idols. They do not contain or represent him. But they are symbols that point to God's presence with them. Right? The ark, the throne of God the bread of presence on the table, God's presence with them. They present constantly before God. The lamb, God's constant watch care over them. All images and pictures of God's nearness to them. God is close to them. Um, <clears throat> they are to draw in worship, they are to draw near to him as they draw near to these objects. And as they see them, it's a reminder of that God is with them, dwelling in the midst of their camp in the temple. He is the heart and center of their worship. But not simply as an idea or a theology that's in the center of their thinking, but as a person who's living right in the midst of their camp, that they have access to, albeit limited access, but they have access to go right up into the very presence of God. And not for the purpose of getting his help or manipulating God, because he's already saved them. In the covenant, he has already promised to protect them, to care for them and supply their needs. Worship was not about manipulating God to do stuff for them. But it was, uh, it was about this God who was not far away, who was near, and who invited the people into his presence. Worship meant meeting with God who was in their midst. Um, and in this sense, uh, it's good to go to the New Testament. And Hebrews 9 helps us understand a little bit more about what the temple is. Hebrews 9.23 says this, That is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of 
things in heaven had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things were in heaven and had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. Uh, the writer of Hebrews tells us that the, tab- the tabernacle, the temple, was a copy of heavenly things. It was, in a sense, heaven come to earth. God with it. Right? Uh, it wasn't just God far away giving distant images of himself, but it was a place where God himself came. It does point back to the garden because the garden was the same thing. The garden was a, a temple, a space on earth where God could meet with man. And of course, Adam and Eve walked and met with God and communed and fellowshiped with God. That was their worship in the garden. But we all know that God is a holy God. And when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They lost access to God. They were kicked out of the garden. No longer did they have a place where they could come and meet with God. And for all those years from the garden until the tabernacle, God was really out of touch. But what the tabernacle, what this worship means is now God is back. He is now accessible. Limited, but accessible to them. As they can come into his presence and meet with the living God of heaven in this little tiny slice of heaven on earth. It is really God's second attempt at dwelling with his people. Uh, and of course, uh, he, he is still in heaven. Right? He didn't move. He didn't sell heaven and relocate to earth. Right? It's a model. It's a copy But it's a copy where God dwells and in some way he is very real, uh, really present in a very real and specific and clear way. He was in their midst. And so because he's he's there, he's also still holy. And and so the, the problems that got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden had to be dealt with. So his holiness is guarded. He's accessible, but not completely accessible. Right? There's the Holy of Holies. There needs to be atonement. Uh, there must be the shedding of blood and a priest, a mediator, who will carry that blood into the temple. We'll see all that later uh, as we study how the priests uh, mediated this relationship. But the point of it all is this. This is the heart of worship. God wanting to be in relationship with us, not from the distance of heaven, but close and near up close and personal. And so as they came into worship, they came into God's presence, and there they were to celebrate and remember his goodness. Uh, that they were in God's presence, but they were also celebrating what he had done for them. The ark reminds them that uh, it is his throne, and it is a place where God has made possible atonement. The table reminds them that he, his, his very presence is their daily bread, and he uh, had promised to be their faithful provider. And the lampstand reminded them uh, that, that he is light and life and was constantly watching over and caring for them. Well, obviously, we didn't come this morning to a tent or a temple. You, you know, we, we don't have a lampstand uh, or an ark not even a table, although some churches do have the table, a little communion table, which is a good thing. We don't even have that, right? Um, so what, is wor- what does this mean for us in our worship? 
Well, I think for us, we, we have received the benefit of a great worship upgrade through Jesus, who was our perfect sacrifice. Uh, the rest of Hebrews 9, 23 and 24 says this. Let me read the first part again. This is why the tabernacle and everything in it, which were copies of things in heaven, had to be purified by the blood of animals. But the real things in heaven had to be purified with far better sacrifices than the blood of animals. For Christ did not enter into a holy place made with human hands, which was only a copy of the true one in heaven. He entered into heaven itself to appear now before God on our behalf. Uh, this is amazing. The temple was, was a, a type. It was a picture not only of a copy of what heaven was, but it was also a type of what Jesus would do for us by going with his own blood into the real temple. And when Jesus gave his life, he somehow took his blood and came and brought it before the Father. And at the true, real seat of atonement, he purchased our forgiveness. He made atonement on our behalf. And therefore, the copy is no longer relevant there's no more purpose or function in the copy because now we have the real thing. Uh, Jesus has, has gone into the real thing, the real heaven, the real throne of God, and he has made atonement for us. Uh, so does that mean the temple's done away with? Well, no. It means that now there is a new temple. Ephesians 2, 19 through 22 says this. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In other words, the work of Jesus is the foundation of our life, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place, dwelling place for God by the Spirit. amazing thing is, uh, we come this morning and as we gather, we are being built together. We as the church are the temple of the living God. Our coming together brings into this place the presence of God. Right? He is here in our midst because we gathered in his name. And of course, not only corporately as a church, but individually. We are individually the temple of the living God. So we can worship him any time. We can, in a morning as we open our Bible and have our cup of coffee and we pray, we're not worshiping God who's millions of light years away up in heaven. We worship a God who set up his temple in our heart, in our life. We are living temples where he dwells. And the point of all that we learn from the furniture is God wants to be present with us. He wants us to live with him. And our worship is ultimately meeting with him. Right? Jesus doesn't make Exodus obsolete or meaningless. Instead, he upgrades it to a whole new level. Uh, because the Israelites did not have full access into God's presence, but you and I do through the blood of Jesus. Hebrews says we can come boldly into the very throne of God. What does that mean? 
into the, into the place where the ark is, into the t- uh, mercy seat, the atonement cover. We can go right into that place boldly and confidently where we can have full and direct access to God. Now, the, the reality is that we are a true and living temple. We gather. We are the real temple of God. He's, his presence is here. But it's still not heaven, right? We still all know that while in our heads, Jesus is in our hearts, and we know that as a, as a fact, oftentimes he still feels distant, right? We can still have the feeling that we can peer into the tabernacle, we can kind of see it, we know it's there, but it's not quite like it will be in heaven. So even for us, there's still future anticipation when uh, we will live in God's presence in a way that's much more tangible and real, where uh, not only will it be a reality, but it will be, a, a, for us, an experiential reality. But, but the truth is that um, this is our worship. And as we close... You know, we know we're to exalt and worship God. We know we're to honor him. We're, we're to lift up his name. But in all honesty, as, as you worship, as you praise him, how often is it lifting up a God who seems like he's 10 million miles away? Right? Worshiping and exalting a theology and an idea that we know is true, but is far and distant and, and not at all connected to my everyday life. Well, I really believe that what the temple is about is to invite us into a different kind of worship where we exalt, exalt and lift up and honor a God who's not the God of heavens, but the God who is near, who is with us, who is in us, who longs for real communion and fellowship with us and with him in his presence. What exactly does that look like and how does that work in your life? I don't know, because I'm still trying to figure it out in my own life, right? Um, but uh, for us, it should be something that we pursue. This God who is with us, right? Who's, whose constant watch care is over us. And for me, I know this, that sometimes life is hard and I struggle and I am wiped out. And it's an amazing thing to know that in those moments when I'm being crushed under the struggles of this life, that I have access into the presence of God, that he is my daily bread, that I can come into his presence and um, I don't have to do anything. I don't have to go through magic rituals or ceremonies to somehow get there. I, I walk into his presence through the life of Jesus and he promises to minister to you and I. Right? He promises his watch care over our life, his atonement, his forgiveness, his grace, his provision for our needs, both externally as, as well as nourishing our soul. So as we, as we turn to a time of prayer, I'd invite you just to close your eyes and heart and just ask God right now to... Um, to minister to you as you draw into his presence. And then as we worship him, to do that uh, in the presence of the living God. 
You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.